Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we're going to finish the chapter today, at least I think we are. We're going to be taking verses 26 to 40. That's a big chunk of scripture, which I am personally opposed to, but I think it goes together and I think uh, we will get through all of it this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning at verse 26. Paul writes, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two, at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Join with me as I pray before we work our way through this text this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us. We thank you that it is given to us in our language. We thank you that it is understandable. We thank you that we have the Holy Spirit to help us, to teach us that we might know the truth. And so this morning, as we go through your word, speak to us. May we again understand and be obedient to the things that you have laid out in your word, in your name. Amen. Well, we have been going through chapter 14, and, and really we've been talking about the superiority of prophecy over tongues. And yet there's one theme that just keeps coming through over and over in chapter 14, and that is simply edification. What needs to be done in the church as it assembles is to be edified. In other words, we need to have the church to be built up. It's like building a building. And the church needs to be built up. 
And so, as we've gone through this chapter, he says, listen, do what is good for edifying. The one, he says, who speaks in tongues edifies himself. Oh, that's not a good thing. Because edification is for what? The building up of the church, not an individual. He says, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies what? The church. What are spiritual gifts given for? The building up of the church. They are the instruments God uses to build the church. He says, the one who prophesies, who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so the church may be received what? Edifying. Edifying. Verse 12. Seek to abound for the edification of what? The church. Over and over, this theme comes through. We must be for the edification and the building of the church. And so as he's compared these two gifts, he says, and again, if we went back to chapter 12, he gave a demonstration of gifts. Seek the greater gifts. Why? Because they edify the church. Now, he's given us instructions between tongues and and prophecy. And we have seen over and over again the purpose of tongues and the edification comes through understanding. And, the, and so we want to speak in a way that people can understand because edification can't come from under from lack of understanding. And we want to pray in, in, with our mind and we want to praise with our mind because that's the only way that edification comes. And so we could really say that verses 1 to 25 here have been what we would call doctrinal. He's been giving us a really a doctrinal treaty as to what is to take place for edification in the church and why prophecy has been superior to tongues because it edifies the church. And the problem with the Corinth church is they all wanted to speak in tongues because they all wanted to be edified themselves and they all wanted to be lifted up and they thought it was the greatest manifestation of the Spirit. And they wanted the greatest manifestation of the Spirit, not for the common good, but for their good. And so he's given this, we would call almost a theological treaty here in verses 1 to 25 to demonstrate the superiority of prophecy because it edifies. And now as he comes to the end of this chapter, after giving us really the height, we would say, in verses 20 to 25, giving the purpose and the effect of tongues, he now comes to what I would call a very practical session. In other words, you, you've had all this doctrine, and now I'm going to actually give you a practical outworking of this doctrine in the church so that when you gather, your gifts are used for the edification of the church. And really, that's exactly what he does when he begins, and he really states that in verse 26. What is the outcome then? After everything that I've taught you, after everything that you've seen, what's the outcome? And he's about to apply it, and then he says this, When you assemble, each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Now, at first, there are those who, they see that and they go, oh, There we go. This is how the church service is to go. Here is the template for the church. This is what we need to do. When we get together, we need to have a free-for-all and we need to have all this going on. And they say, this, this, this is what the church does. 
Well, I might suggest to you that what Paul says is this is what you're doing. He doesn't say this is what should be done. He says this is actually what's taking place when you're here. And in fact, if we're willing to go back and continue in context here, he's already said you get together for what? Not for your good. It's worse when you get together. You guys are getting together. You're getting drunk at the, at the Lord's Supper. You guys are having all of these problems. There's divisions over wealth. And then you, you've come to ta- into gifting. And now you've made tongues the thing that sets you up. And by nature, if you are self-promoting, you are selfish, which causes divisions within the church. And he says, all of this trouble has been started for, from this. And so he says, when you come together, this is what you've been doing. But the problem is it hasn't been for the edification of the church. It's been for the edification of the individual. And so he says, when you get together, there are those who have a psalm. It talks about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Again, he's saying, there are some of you who come together here and you want to sing. You've got the gift. You want, you've got the gift of wanting to, to, to set out and, and to maybe even put Scripture to, to music and you want to do that in, in the assembly. And so you've got, we might even say in the congregation of court, the dueling soloists who want to all put their gift out there, all want to be seen. And then he says, some have a teaching. Some of you got a teaching gift and you're coming and you're prepared. You're all prepared to teach. And so you all want to, all with the gift of teaching, want to get out there and you all want to teach. And everybody's got a word to say. Everybody's prepared. So you can imagine how that goes. He says, it has a revelation. Maybe that's speaking specifically of prophecy. So we've got those who have the gift of prophecy and now they want to get in on it has a gift of the tongues. We've got those who want to speak in tongues and, and they, want to, they want to get up and speak. And at the same time, we have those who have, want to do interpretation and we've got dueling interpreters going on in the church. And so Paul is saying, this is what's taking place in your church. You guys have not, you've been getting together and there's chaos because there's all of this competing stuff. I want to remind you here that 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. Right? We don't have elders being set up. We don't have Paul revisiting the churches yet in order to get the the church structured like it's supposed to be. And what Paul is describing here is not the finished church or what it should be. He's describing what is taking place in the first century. And because something is described does not make it prescriptive. And so he says, this is what's going on. And then he says, let all things be done for edification. In other words, this has been taking place. We've been self-promoting, self-exalting. And he says, no, instead of that, let everything be taken for what? For edification, for the building of the church. Which means, stop promoting yourself, stop pushing yourself forward, stop the confusion within the church. And so he says, let all things be done for edification. Here's the general rule of church. Let every, all things be done for edification. 
for the building up of the body. Whatever you do, whatever gift you have, plug it into the church, not for your good, not for your exaltation, not for self-promotion, but for the church. Well, you might say, well, that's great, Paul. What does that look like? What does that look like? And Paul says, I'm going to answer that question for you. And now he's going to give us four guidelines in order to organize the church because organization ultimately leads to edification. You can't have what? Chaos and edification. And he's clear on that. He says, all things must be done in order. He says, God is a God of order. In other words, edification will not come unless the church has a proper order and is done not in chaos, but in proper order. So he gives us four, we would say, four guidelines in order for the church to effectively assemble together and to, to bring edifications to its members. He gives us guidelines for tongues. He gives us guidelines for prophecy. He gives us guidelines for women's behavior in the church. And he gives guidelines to everybody in response to these instructions. So he begins in verse 27 and he says, here's the guidelines for tongues. He says, if anyone has a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three. And each one in turn must interpret. So he begins and he says, Here's the issue. You need to recognize that when you come together, there is an order that must take place. We can't have people jumping up and speaking in tongues and everybody, and we can't have everyone doing it. Now, obviously, when he says here in this verse, if every, anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three, he's saying there are those who have the gift of tongues this is the first century. In other words, we could say this. If any individual speaks in a foreign language, it should be by two or at most three. So he says, when it comes to tongues, when it comes to speaking in a foreign language in the church, a language that the congregation doesn't understand, maybe there's one person in the back who doesn't speak the language that you do, but understands that tongue. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. He says, this should only take place within the church. And he says, with two or at most three. And the idea is, two's a lot, three is way out. The, the, the word there for, for, for at most three is, is, a, is a word that's used for a massive number. So two, two's a lot, three is like, wow. Now we're starting to overwhelm the congregation. We can do three. But he says, there's a limit to how many tongues should be done in the church. How many people should be able to speak. And so he limits it right off the top with number. And so there were those in the first century. This is the first century. Tongues are alive and well. Remember, at this point, I would say there's a maximum. Of, this is maybe the fourth book that's written. We've got Galatians and James. Maybe the book of Matthew and 1 Corinthians. And so tongues are, are still being used by God to demonstrate the message and the messenger and the word of God is not there, is not fully written. 
And so he says, by two or three, limit, limit the numbers, limit the confusion. Now we would say this, if we were to look at, at, modern, at the modern church, this by itself would eliminate most of the foolishness that you see. This would simply eliminate most of the foolishness that you see. People all talking on their own, everybody babbling, everybody rolling in the aisles. He says by two at most, what, three. Even if you believe that tongues were existed today, you would have to say this would limit most of what you see. It cannot help it. Now notice this, and this is also a, a, a critique on that same point, and each in turn, not all at the same time, not everybody rolling, going through the barrel, holy fire in the barrel and rolling, the holy tunnel, but what? One in turn. In other words, one, one guy, then the next. There's an order to tongues. There's an order to it. Not over-talking, not interrupting, but each in turn. Not all at once, but together. And then he says it's not without limited. It's not without un unlimited interpretation. He says, and let one interpret, but if there's no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church. Now what I want you to notice here and is this. He says, let one interpret. Let one interpret. Now, I don't do this often, but I'm going to say this. This is what we would call in the Greek in the emphatic position. In other words, he's trying to emphasize when he says this, he's trying to emphasize the word one. He says, two, maybe three, do this, and there is to be one who interprets. One. Not multiple interpreters, not different interpreters for everyone, one. Now think about that. Again, that is going to what? That is going to narrow this down. One interpreter. Not multiple interpreters. Not competing interpreters. Not an interpreter for each guy, but one interpreter. And so he says it's not without unlimited interpreters. The gift of tongues does not come without unlimited interpreters, but one interpreter. You're starting to see order come into the church service even when the gift was, was alive and well in the church. And then he says this, it's, it's not just li without, with limited interpreters, but he says not without an interpreter. Now he even confines it more to keep the confusion of the church and having someone speak in a foreign language that no one understands and, in, and is going off. He says, guess what? If there's not an interpreter, but if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. Don't do it. Don't speak in tongues. If you know, and remember, we, we would understand it in the church, they would understand who had the gift in their interpretation. 
And he says, if you know they're not there, you, what, you, you be quiet. You do not speak in the church. He says, let him speak to himself and to God. In other words, hold your tongue, meditate and pray before the Lord, but do not speak. In other words, you recognize that this is not the time nor the place for this to take place, and therefore, be willing to give up your right to speak, give up your right to, to interrupt the service, because you know that there's no one there to interpret, therefore, guess what? Just meditate and pray to God. That's what you do. That's what you do. And so he says, this will help you. Remember, the gift is alive and well in the first century church in, first, in Corinth. But he says, when you gather, this, this is what I want you to do. This is how you will edify the church. The church should not be overrun by tongue speaking and by dueling interpretations and many people speaking over top of one another. Order. God is a God of order. And the only way for the church to be edified is to follow the order that God gives. <clears throat> well, tongue, Paul's been hard on tongues and he keeps telling us how much better prophecy is, but he doesn't let the prophets get away with it either because there's actually an order to prophecy as well. So he gives us guidelines involving prophecy, prophesying in the church meeting. Again, the tongues was in the church meeting, and here again we speak in the church meeting. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. Again, there's a limitation on those who have the gift of prophecy, and we define the gift of prophecy as foretelling a new word from God that has never come before. And he says, in the church service, two, maximum three, of these prophecies are to take place within the church. In other words, we just don't go on prophesying. We don't have everyone standing up who's a prophet. If there's ten prophets in the church, guess what? If the other guys get there first, you wait. You wait. And he said, let the others pro pass judgment. Now people have gone all over the place. Well, that must be the church. That must be everybody in the church. Well, it seems pretty simple to me in the context here. Who are the others? If only three prophets can speak, there must be more prophets there. Who, who better to discern what the prophets are teaching than the prophets who have discernment and, and are, are able to interpret and to say, yes, that's from God. That, that goes with what has been already spoken to me. That is what... Has, is consistent with, interpret, with prophecy that has gone before. And so he says, this is, this is what you do with tongues. You limit the number of prophets, and then it must be what? Interpreted by other prophets to say whether it is true, whether it is right. So that there is, remember, Satan is a deceiver, and to make sure that these truly are men from God. So the question you might have in your mind is, who are these prophets? We want to make sure that we understand 
that in the New Testament, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. These are New Testament prophets who God used until the word of God was fully written, who had foretelling abilities as God moved on them to give truth from God to the people. And again, we would say that much of that is recorded here. And so the prophets, again, just like tongues, are no longer with us. They are the foundation of the church. They were used in the first century until the Bible was written. And they are no longer here. But in Corinth, again, it is alive and well. First century gifts are there and they are speaking. And so they must speak in limited numbers and they do not speak without scrutiny. They must be held to account. Now this is interesting. He also says not only are they, are, are they not held without scrutiny, but they're not held without limit. In other words, it says here, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first must keep silent. In other words, God was speaking to prophets in the church, and if someone who was speaking, it was speaking, and God spoke to someone else, and that man stood up and said, I have a revelation, he was what? To sit down. Now, it may have been uh, simply that God was saying, you know what, you're done, right? You're, you're done. What I've told you, you're done. Maybe keep the prophet from going on. But in any case, he says, listen, if there, is, if there is a new prophecy that comes, that man must sit down. He, he doesn't get the floor. He doesn't keep to keep speaking. He doesn't get to dominate it. But he must keep silent. He must be quiet. He must sit down. He must be willing to give it over. Now again, if we're talking about the edification of the church, we have to have someone who's willing to give up his rights to speak, to sit down when God speaks to somebody else. That takes humility. That builds unity. Can you imagine? No, no, I'm not done. Sit down. Right? How is that going to work in the church? Confusion, fighting? But he said, the prophet who truly is speaking for God will be willing to sit down. He'll be willing to sit down. He'll be willing to be quiet. Not without limit, not without scrutiny, not without order. Look at verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. In other words, there's an order. Now again, all prophesy. It could, we know that not everybody has a gift of prophecy, so all can't mean everybody in the congregation. It can't mean all prophets, because they all can't do it. They can only do two, maximum three. But he says there's an order, one, one after another. And he says, we want to have order so that we may learn and we may be exhorted. In other words, if you have pe people talking over them, how are you, who are you listening to? How are you going to learn? And he says, when they speak from the Lord one by one, people what? Learn. They're exhorted. They're encouraged in the Lord. 
So he says, it's not without order, one by one. This is the way we learn. We listen to one person at a time, and we're all exhorted, encouraged to be better, encouraged to be obedient, encouraged in the Lord. And then he says, not only is it not without order, but it's not without control. Not without control. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, the prophet has the ability to close his mouth. The Holy Spirit doesn't come upon him and overpower him, doesn't put him in a trance. He doesn't make it so it's impossible for him not to speak. It's under his control. In other words, his gifting is under control. It shouldn't be out of control babbling. It shouldn't be uncontrolled speaking. He says, your gifting is under your control. And again, if we remember, the Corinth has been in the temple of Diana. They have seen the heathen oracles. They've seen them speak in in gibberish. And they've seen them, the speaker, out of control, unable to control his impulses. And Paul says no true prophet of God can claim a prolonged hearing on that ground. No one who is truly controlled by God is out of control. Such lack of restraint is not a picture of the power of the Holy Spirit working on someone, but a picture of someone who is out of control and not under the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, for, I'm going to explain it. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a little bit more information on it. For God is not a God of confusion, but of what? Peace. When you see things in chaos and you see things out of control and you see people who cannot control themselves, who are in trances, who are bouncing around out of control, that is not God. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Not chaos, but peace. God has always set up His worship to the way that He desires it to be. With Israel, look at all the ceremonies and everything that were set up. God said, you will worship me. You will worship me in a particular way and you will worship me my way. Because I am not a God of confusion. I'm a God of peace. I don't work in confusion. In fact, we remember that we talked about edification coming through the mind And when experience and emotion and trances become the way with which we think God works, we forget that God works what? Through the mind and through understanding. Edification only comes through the mind. He's not a a God of confusion. He's a God of peace.
So we've seen this morning, if we're going to have edification in the church, there's a procedure to tongues. There's, there's guidelines to tongues. There's guidelines to prophecy. And now as he moves into verse 30, end of 33 and into verse 34 and 35, he now gives us guidelines to women's behavior in the assembly. The end of 33 says, and I do believe that this goes with the next verse, as in all the churches of the saints. In other words, what I'm about to tell you is a universal principle. What I'm about to tell you is everywhere in the church, Corinth. You may be doing things different. You may be doing things your way. But this is God's way. This is what I have for you. This is in all the churches. He says the women are to keep silence in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but are sub to subject themselves just as the law also says. Now, for many in the church, this is controversial, which I really don't understand. Maybe it's because I'm a man, right? But I think Bible, the Bible has been very, very, very clear on this. You have a church here that has completely chaos based on experience, based on emotion, who have been jumping up in the service trying to exercise their gifts. And it should be no surprise that women are gifted. And it should be no surprise that in this chaos they think this is an opportunity. I feel like I can add to this service. I think I can add to this. I can speak in a tongue. I can Maybe I can prophesy. And so the women are jumping up and they are, they are assuming authority within the church, within the assembly as they speak. And Paul says, no, that doesn't happen. That's not what's to take place. He says women are to be silent in the assembly. In other words, women are not to be up teaching in the church. For they are not permitted to speak. In other words, they are not allowed to be teachers in the church. He's not saying that women can't teach. Titus chapter three, chapter, chapter 1 gives us what? A full menu for where women are to teach and to exercise their gifts. Teach other women, teach children. Right? There's lots of places. And when he says they're not permitted to speak, it doesn't mean that when you walk into the church that you can't open your mouth. I, otherwise, we're going to have to discipline a lot of you for singing earlier, right? But the idea is what? Not to teach. Not to teach. He says the, the, they must be silent. They're not to be trying to interpret. They're not trying to speak in tongues. They're not supposed to give a, a teaching. But they are to subject themselves just as the law says. And again, there's debate whether that goes back to Genesis chapter 2 where it talks about Eve being what? Created for Adam's helpmate? She was not to lead him. She was to help him to fill in his weaknesses. But he was created first. He named her. He had authority. God gave it to Adam. 
in the fall, right? Your desire will be to your husband. This is what's going on here. They're usurping the authority of men. And he says, no, that's not what's to take place. Now, people have done gymnastics because they've gone back to chapter 11 here and they say, listen, women were praying and prophesying. And that has to be in the church. That's not what Paul says. Paul never once says that they are speaking and prophesying in the church. He does say they are prophesying and praying without their head covers. He doesn't say where. Now, if we turn over to 1 Timothy, Paul is pretty clear about this. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Beginning at verse 11. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Now again, gentlemen, this is not at home. <laughs> this is within the church. Okay, This is within the assembly of the church. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. In the assembly... He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. That goes against what? Paul's male chauvinistic pride, right? After all, I mean, he's just look, he's a product of his environment, his culture. He just doesn't know what we know here in the 21st century, right? Really, I mean, actually, I, I actually, I actually think that he—he's just making a suggestion here, right? He's just making a suggestion. Well, what does he base it in? Culture? No, he bases it in what created order. For it was Adam who was created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman who was deceived fell in transgression. In other words, this is based not in what? The fall, but in created order. God has created an order and He's created roles. And He says this role is for men, this role is for women. And in the church, there's an authority of men, of leadership in the church. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a protection. It's a protection because he says what? Women, but the woman was deceived. In other words, male leadership is a protection for women because God has designed it that way. It's good. It's healthy. And ultimately, if God has created men and women this way, it will be for your good, not only just for your good, it will be for your satisfaction. It will be the best way that you can live and most satisfying way you can live. And so he says, listen, 
if we're going to have edificate, being edified in the church, we need to make sure that we abide by what? Male leadership in the church. In Timothy, I find it, I find it significant that after dealing with the woman, and he says, be silent in the church, he begins with what? If a man desires to be what? An elder in the church, right? He desires a good thing, and he must be what? A husband of what? One wife. Isn't that significant? And he must be what? Apt to teach. Women, don't teach. Don't have authority over a man, which means teaching his authority over a man. Therefore, guess what? Men, if you desire to be an elder, you need to be apt to teach because that's your role. And so, I think Scripture is not clear. Sometimes it's hard to accept. But I think it's clear. In fact, Paul goes on, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands. Now, several things go into that. It would appear that they were asking questions and maybe disturbing the service. And Paul says that doesn't, that doesn't add to order in the church. It adds to confusion. And he says, let him ask her own husband at home. In other words, there's a place to ask the question. And it's not in the middle of the assembly. And it's not to blurt out in the assembly, hey, pastor, what do you mean by that? Or I disagree with that. I'm glad for that, by the way. It threw me off. But he says you are to what? Ask your husband at where? Home. There's, there's, a, there's actually a place for that. And you have been given a spiritual leader at home that you should first consult. If you don't understand or you have a question, ask him. Gentlemen, what's the implication for you? Yeah, you need to know something. You need to know the Word of God. You need to study. You need to be in the Word so that you have an answer. Right? You need to be the spiritual leader of your home. Can't answer what you don't know. Now, I want to make it very, very, very clear. Women have great insight into Scripture. I'm not saying that they're you know, so weak they just need a man. What I am saying is that you're responsible to lead your home. But men, you would, be, you would be negligent not to listen to your wife. I'm going to embarrass my wife, but I don't know how many times I have come out of my study and I said, you, you know what this is about? And she looks at it, she goes, A, B, C, D. And I'm going like, that took me 10 hours to figure that out. <laughs> right? So women have insight into Scripture. They have the Holy Spirit. We're not denigrating women as if they don't have the ability to learn or they're dumb. But we are saying that there is a spiritual responsibility even in the home for a husband to be the spiritual leader. He says, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. It is shameful. It is shameful for her to be teaching. It is shameful for her to have authority over a man. It is shameful for her to what? Disrupt the service. Now, I hate to keep, keep kicking the can down the road on our charismatic brethren, 
Well, I should. <laughs> but how many movements have been led in the charismatic movement by women? How many of them have, have ordained women and allow them to teach from their pulpit? Too many. Because they have been unwilling to follow the Word of God. And instead of edifying the church and building the church, they've actually brought shame. They've brought shame. It's scandalous is the word. A deformity. of it, it can be used for deformity. And it is a deformity of God's intention that a woman should teach in the church. Not that women can't teach. They have a place to teach. They're excellent teachers. But there's a time and a place. Now I want to make it clear. All of this is applying to the assembly. This is Sunday morning. Okay? When we meet for a Sunday school or a Bible study, that is not the meeting of the ecclesia, the assembly, all of the church. So yes, there's a place for questions at prayer meeting. There's a, a place for questions at Bible study. Right? All of those are places, absolutely. But not in the meeting here of, of the church. Now Paul has given probably three strong rebukes to the church here. He's given them a little bit, bit of a, a punch in the nose. But just in case they're not getting it, and just in case they're... Uh, resistant he says was it from you that the word of God first went forth are you the guys who the gospel came to are you the guys who who are spreading the gospel is it you or has it come to you only are you the only ones who have truth are you the only one who knows a little bit of sarcasm I think from Paul right I've just given you some tr hard truths and man, you didn't like the tongues. Maybe you let up on the prophecy because you know you haven't realized how important it is. But that woman thing, that's a stickler. And Paul says, what? You at Corinth know better? You're the only one who has the truth of the Word of God? You're the only one that the Gospel came to? Did it come from you? And of course, the answer is no. And so then Paul moves on here at the end of this and he gives guidelines or procedures for everyone when it comes to the gathering and the commandments that he's given to them. He says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, and that's probably speaking uh, uh, the same word in 1412, which is speaking of spiritual gifts, which is probably tongues. He says, if anybody thinks he's a prophet or anyone thinks he speaks in tongue, let him recognize that the things that which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Now remember earlier we were saying Paul was a misogynist and he's a you know he you know old-fashioned and you know uh, someone who's been run over by the patriarchy, right? But Paul says, "Just so you know, everything that I've told you so far is not my opinion. It's not something that I felt that should be I had to correct because I didn't like it." He says, "These are." What? The commandments of God. 
just 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 so you know just to make sure that you're you're not getting this wrong and somehow think I'm giving you the as many would say the fatherly advice of an older saint these are the commandments of God how you behave in the order that I've told you for the church are the commandments of God Does anyone thinks, anyone considers, let him recognize. I command you to recognize is what he's saying. You must recognize it. You have no, in fact, he says, he, he, the command means that if you don't recognize what he says as commands of the Lord, that you are in disobedience. You must do it. Verse 38. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Ooh, sounds kind of judgmental, Paul. Absolutely. Absolutely there is called to have judgment. If anyone, and remember, we would understand that both prophecy and tongues are finished. And, and the commandment to the women is actually a commandment that is forever. He says, if you don't recognize what I tell you, you're not recognized. Another one, anyone who has the Holy Spirit will understand that what I have said is commandments of God and therefore the person is not legitimate. The person is not legitimate. If they will not follow what I have said, if they do not recognize what I have said, then they are not legitimate. Remember, all Scripture is God-breathed. All of it. Not some of it. Not the parts we like. Not the red letter part of it. All of it is profitable. So don't try to pass it off as Paul's cultural opinion. It has come from God. That person is to be rejected. They're to be cast out. In light of that, he says, therefore, my brethren, consistent, listen to the consistent message. Therefore, in light of all of this, Everything that I've told you, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Okay? In other words, you as a church put an emphasis on what? Prophecy. Now, we don't prophesy today, but we do have the Word of God, and this is the Word God speaks. This is what the prophets recorded. This is what the apostles wrote down for us. And he says, listen, put this central. Desire it. Emphasize it because this is what brings what? Edification. He's not saying, again, we said it's not an individual who's supposed to seek a gift they don't have, but rather the church to emphasize this because this is what builds the church. So he says, 
and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Now, many people have said, well, see, Paul never forbid tongues. But remember, this is the first century, right? This is where they are what? Once again, tongues are used in evangelical, for, for evangelism as people hear you speak the praises and the, and the glories of God like you did in Acts chapter 2. They say, oh, what is that? God is speaking. I want it. This, again, validates the gospel. Paul, Peter got up in Acts chapter 2 and preached the gospel and he says, this validates the message and the messenger. So Paul says, gifts are still going. Therefore, what? Don't. Don't forbid them. He already said they're going to cease, but he says, guess what? They haven't ceased yet. And then he finishes off. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. In other words, it will, in order for edification to take place, things must be done properly and orderly. They must be done right, and they must be done in an orderly fashion. It must be done in sequence. Decently refers to harmony and beauty. Order refers to things being done in sequence. And he says, if the church is going to be edified when it gathers together, things must be done in harmony and in order. This is how the church is going to be edified. And so Paul puts some very practical limits on how we are to what? Gather what we do when we gather and we assemble. And he says, God is God of what? Not of confusion, but of peace, of order. And therefore we must, when we come together, come together for what? Edification. And we have to be just like the Corinthians and recognize that we must do things in order and harmony and beauty and we must be willing to step aside and let others exercise their gifts. We must not demand the use of our gifts. We must be willing to do what is best for what the building of the church And we have to be honest with our gifting and saying, listen, I, I like to teach, but man, the guy, this guy is better than me. God has gifted him in a way that's better than me, and I am willing to step aside for him. I love to teach, but this guy's better. This guy preaches, but he's better. Are we willing to do what's best? The edification of the church. And are we willing not to cause chaos, but to go in God's order? If we do, then we too will have a church that is not being torn down at Corinth, but will be built up to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we again... Thank you for your word. 
We thank You for its clarity. And I pray that we would be those who would recognize the need for order. That how we conduct ourselves when we get together is important. And that we would be a church that would come together not for chaos, not for worse, but for better. And that we would be willing to use our gifts in a way that is pleasing to you as we gather together. And that we would order our assembly in a way that would be pleasing to you. We thank you for, again for the instruction of your word. May we again be willing to bow to your word and recognize that your word is not just true, but it is good for us. And it will ultimately bring us the greatest satisfaction if we are willing to submit to your word. We thank you for that you are a good God. Make us a church that is ordered in a way that will edify and build your church, I pray in your name. Amen.